This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, copyright 1989 by Gary North. These prophetic passages in Isaiah 61 and 62 are tied to the benefits of the Jubilee year. Israel's year of release, Leviticus 25. It was these verses that Jesus cited when he read from Isaiah in the synagogue of Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there he delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Luke four sixteen through 21 if the Jubilee year was fulfilled by Christ in principle at the very beginning of his ministry on earth, then Christians should work hard to manifest this liberty principle in history. The promised year of release is judicially behind us. As free men in Christ, we should therefore strive to extend this covenantal kingdom freedom to all the nations of the earth. This is what preaching the, the gospel is all about, the comprehensive healing, salvation of individuals and institutions. To say that salvation is strictly limited to the hearts of men is to say that the manifestation of the glory of God in history is limited to the hearts of men. But this is not how the Bible speaks of salvation. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof goes forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Isaiah 62, 1-3 God is seen through his people's actions and in the institutions that they build to his glory in terms of his covenant. The presence of God is manifested by the visible working of his kingdom's principles in history. It is a mistake to assume that God is not present just because he is not physically present. Such a view of the presence of God belittles the work of the Holy Spirit in history. God is present with his people. Jesus promised after his resurrection, Lo, I am with thee always, even until the end of the age, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. He then ascended into heaven, Acts 1, 9. But before he departed, he promised the disciples that ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1.8. This is one of the strangest facts in the Bible. In order for God to be present with his people in power, his son had to depart from the earth. Because Jesus Christ has departed physically, his people can be closer to God spiritually than if he had remained on earth. Jesus was very clear in his teaching about this. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither thou goest. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of justice, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall speak. Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore are said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. John sixteen five through 16 you know, there are millions of Christians today who feel impotent in the face of this world's powers. They feel that because Jesus Christ is not physically present on earth, that his people are at best people without much influence. They believe that as time goes on, God's people will have even less influence. They will be steadily surrounded and forced into the shadows of history. Did Jesus say such a thing? No. He said that the prince of this world is judged. He said that he had to go away so that his people could gain more knowledge and more authority. He said that the Holy Spirit would lead godly men into all truth. But today's Christians cannot seem to understand the extent of the authority that Christ passed to his people when he sent the Holy Spirit into the midst of the church. Christians lack confidence because they do not fully understand the extent to which God is present with his people in their battles against the spiritual heirs of Satan. They believe that the only way for them to be salt and light and the leaven of righteousness in history is for Jesus to come again physically and set up an international Christian bureaucracy. If this is not berating the work of the Holy Spirit, what is? If this is not ignoring the specific words of Jesus, that his people will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to them, then what is? Today's Christ's bodily, bodily resurrection is behind us. We have a complete Bible to teach us and the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. We have centuries of experience behind us through the development of church creeds and courts. We have 19 centuries of missions experience to draw upon. We also possess vast economic wealth, capital undreamed of as recently as two centuries ago, or even a half a century ago. We have, we have incomparable tools of communication. What more do we lack? In spite of all these God-given tools of dominion, Christians feel as if they are a tiny besieged army surrounded by powerful hostile forces. When, the, when they read that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, Matthew sixteen eighteen, the church prevails not. The church prevails, not the angelic hosts of heaven. They somehow hear in their minds something quite different, that the gates of hell prevail against Satan's demonic onslaught. They think that Satan is being on the offensive today. They forget that the resurrection of Christ, what it did to Satan. They do not acknowledge that the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit changed anything fundamentally in history. It is not clear in the mind that ever since Christ's resurrection and his ascension into heaven, the church has been on the offensive, and it is Satan who has been on the defensive. Legitimate confidence. With God above us and church history behind us, 
Why should we Christians have any doubt about the earthly success of our cause? We may have doubts regarding our own courage and capacities, but we should have none regarding God's strength. Psalm 110.1 makes God's plan plain. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven is not is not a guarantee of the church's pro- progressive defeat until he returns again, physically in absolute power. On the contrary, he sits at God's right hand until his enemies are subdued. The verse could not be any plainer. Jesus will not return again until the church, as his authorized representative in this New Testament era, has made his enemies his footstool. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, 1 Corinthians 15.24. We should believe that God wants to see his name elevated in history. The creation reflects him. Therefore, as history progresses, it should reflect God as the author of all human authority. How can his position as Lord over creation be manifested in history? Through the effective labor of his covenant people. Even though Jesus is physically absent, he is surely not judicially absent. Dare we say that God the Father can manifest his position as sovereign Lord in history only by sending Jesus physically to dwell in some temple or government building? This sounds foolish on the face of it, yet millions of Christians today believe in something very close to this scenario. Jesus Christ manifests his position as the Lord of history through his people. We are his representatives on earth, his ambassadors. To the extent that we extend our influence in his name, God's supreme authority is manifested in history. As we shall see in chapter 2, God's authority in history is manifested representatively. Just as Jesus represented God in history, and just as the Holy Spirit represents both God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, so does the community of called out Christians represent God the Trinity. The church as an institution is Christ's body, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. It represents God on earth. And until Christians view New Testament history in this light, they'll be sorely tempted in two different ways. Either to retreat from the confrontations in history or to become fanatics seeking martyrdom in a necessarily suicidal confrontation with evil. Neither approach is justified by what the Bible teaches about the church's role in history. When Christ, what Christians should conclude is that by prayer, covenantal faithfulness, patient hard work, courage to march forward, and evangelism by word and deed, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will be steadily extended in history. Christians are not called upon to become spiritual kamikazes, flying bomb-laden planes in the enemy's massive fleet of ships. On the contrary, we are supposed to be the massive fleet of ships into which Satan's fanatic suicide squadrons fly their planes. Satan is the supreme kamikaze pilot, not Jesus. Satan's followers are the fanatics on a suicide mission, not God's followers. Because Christians today do not really believe in an absolute transcendent sovereign God, they do not have the self-confidence that is required to build a kingdom. Because they do not believe that God is with them always in every battle against evil, they do not want to get involved in any battle against evil. That is outside the narrow confines of the local church or the family. But evil is out there, moving toward us, surrounding us. And unless we are ready and able to go on the offensive and take the war to the enemy wherever he is, the enemy will work to weaken us and then try to eliminate us 
every seat of influence. It is time for Christians to go visibly on the offensive against public social evils. The gospel is confrontational. Christianity is in a war to the death with humanism, not just behind the Iron Curtain, but everywhere. There are a lot of Christians who hate the thought of this fight. They deny that it can be won by Christians. They are correct to an extent. It can't be won by those who hold to pietism's theology of the church's impotence in history. Such a theology weakens Christians' will to re resist because it weakens their will to attack. But we have to fight to win. If a person will not fight to win, then he might as well sur surrender now and save himself a lot of trouble. A lot of pietists today trust in the coming rapture as the only way to escape the necessity of publicly surrendering to Satan and his earthly representatives. This means that in order to avoid the public embarrassment of an official surrender to Satan, God's people must leave civilization behind them historically and below them geographically. This is the eschatology of up, up, and away. The rapture is a legitimate hope regarding the end of time, but it not in the middle of history. The problem is, millions of Christians have already abandoned civilization psychologically and motivationally. They have trained themselves to think that the, and act anti-culturally because they think of the rapture as leading them to a safe and historically irresponsible ghetto in the sky. They have adopted a ghetto mentality today. They've packed their bags emotionally. They have learned to think as losers. They forget that God does not call us to surrender this civilization to his enemies. Western civilization is at stake. Those on the defensive in this battle for world civilization will lose. The best defense is a good offense, a good Christian offense that m must rely on biblical law and faith in Christianity's God-ordained victory in history. Too many churches want peace. They want quiet. They don't want controversy. They never want to hear harsh words against their lethargy. Better to preach against unidentified sin, they think. Better to close one eye, one's eyes to the, to the obvious. Better to die in one's sins. So when we activist Christians disturb their self-imposed slumber, they call us harsh. Well, we should not care what they call us. History is forcing their hand. And so is God. A comprehensive gospel. Preaching a comprehensive gospel means confronting a fallen world with a vision and, prog and program for comprehensive redemption. This initially reduces the appeal of a simple save me gospel, for it asks that people implicitly ask God, save me for your purposes by seeking to avoid the inhibiting effect that a realization of vast new responsibilities will have on the listeners, inhibiting uh, apart from the Holy Spirit. The preachers have offered a watered-down version of the gospel is a gospel without comprehensive covenantal responsibilities. What they ignore is that God's Spirit saves men wholly by the power of God. He does not save proportionally more people because the gospel message has been watered down. He saves just as many as he had, as he had chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Jesus said that we are to pray like a woman who seeks justice from an unjust judge, Luke 18, 1 through 5. She comes to him again and again until he finally settles the dispute. Now, is her incessant pestering of the judge useless? She is told to keep pestering him for a long time. This produces nothing except sore knuckles from banging on the door, but those knuckles toughen up and she learns patience. She learns to keep coming back. Eventually, the judge capitulates. He can no longer take it. 
she, she in turn has recovered her gift, the discontinuous transformation of her circumstances as a result of her continuous efforts. The parable of the unjust judge and the persistent seeker of justice should be in front of the planners of every evangelism program. Planning may produce very little in any given generation, but Christians are learning, and the church as a whole is learning. When the church begins to understand the comprehensive nature of the gospel, and also the comprehensive nature of the church's responsibilities, and when all the assets of the church as a body can be tapped and applied by various branches, then and only then can we can we and should we legitimately expect comprehensive, sustained revival. There is a need for true revival. Unless we see revival in terms of at least a century-long process, we'll be planning for a false revival. We'll be planning for short-lived ecstatic outbreaks that are followed by cynicism and generations of skepticism. We've had enough of these before in history. We do not need another one. A revival should be a sharp and unexpected breaking into history by God's Spirit, which subsequently blends into extended periods of institutional transformation. The revival should launch the process of transformation, but the subsequent social transformation is to be a direct heir of the revival itself. The discontinuity of revival must be followed by the continuity of social transformation or else the revival is undermined. Years of preparation. What should a true revival look like? It should be preceded by years of prayer and diligent work. Christians must prepare themselves for competent service. Then a sharp historical discontinuity occurs, the movement of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings justification, the legal declaration of not guilty, to millions of people and gives them the moral righteousness of Christ, definitive sanctification. This sharp discontinuity into history and into the lives of newly regenerated people should then be followed by lives of personal continuity. Progressive personal sanctification and generations of social continuity, progressive cultural sanctification. Thus, the pattern is continuity, discontinuity, continuity is point five of the biblical covenant model. What I'm saying then is that the discontinuity of revival follows a long period of preparation and is followed by an even longer period of social application. Revivals take place within history. Today we see the technological tools in front of us, both for bringing the revival into homes where evangelical visitors seldom enter, ghettos, isolated villages, etc., and for extending the initial transforming work of the revival for decades thereafter. We need to see the work of revival lasting for a minimum of two generations, and probably more just to transform the West. The transition from revival to reconstruction will be, dis- will, be continuous, will be a continuous process, and reconstruction will take generations. The goal, should, the goal should be to have revival produce reconstruction in one region and then have that reconstruction process help finance the next phase of the revival elsewhere. To revive means to bring back to life. It means to come back from the dead. It is God's pre-resurrection resurrection. A church which requires an annual revival is in desperate shape. First, revival will not come in response to a hired parachurch ministry which specializes in whooping up the troops for five evenings in a row once a year. The troops need boot camp more than they need a pep rally. They need an armory more than they need a nursery. They need meat more than they need milk. The church needs vision, motivation, and discipline. Second, 
Revival is what the lost need, is what the lost need, not what the church needs. While the lost may be in the churches, and while many denominations are lost, the church as the church is not in need of revival. For God's people have already been in principle resur- have been in principle resurrected. Their revival was. Their definitive sanctification was. Now they need to apply it. Progressive sanctification. For that, they do not need revival. Instead, they need an awareness of the covenant. A stolen vision. We can see how the biblical process of continuity, discontinuity, continuity is supposed to work by considering a specific case in American history when it failed to work. There was continuity and discontinuity, but the subsequent continuity was cut short. In the decades prior to the Civil War, 1861-65, through 65, the Second Great Awakening, which began around 1800 and accelerated rapidly in the 1820-1850 period, brought many tens of thousands of people to a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, especially in the North and Midwest, then called the Northwest. The first Great Awakening was the revival a century earlier, 1735-55, to 55, uh, whose most famous preachers were those roving English, uh, were the roving English evangelist George Whitfield and Pastor Jonathan Edwards, whose sermons centers in the hands of an angry God with its unforgettable image of the spider suspended on a thread above the burning coals may be the most famous sermon in American history. Many of the evangelical leaders of the Great Awakening in the North became social activists, campaigning publicly against the institution of chattel slavery. The continuity of evangelism, 1800-1820, brought on a religious discontinuity, the Second Great Awakening, 1820-1850, which in turn helped bring a great political discontinuity, the Civil War. But the God-required continuity after 1865 did not appear. After the war, this evangelical enthusiasm for social reform waned in Bible-believing circles. The revivalists from the beginning of the abolitionist movement had deferred to the intellectual leadership of liberal and radical Unitarians in New England, so the evangelicals never really gained social and intellectual leadership in this reform. Abolitionism was a common ground effort in which the New England radicals used the Christians as their shock troops in what became a revolutionary humanist campaign to transform Christian America into a secular humanist country. This is the inevitable danger of any cooperative reform effort between Christian activists and non-Christian activists, no matter how righteous the cause. If the Christians do not control most of the movement's leadership and most of its money, they should not cooperate. Christians must never allow themselves to become the tail on some other religious group's organizational dog. Theological liberals after 1865 secularized the evangelicals' pre-war social optimism, converting the Christians' vision of earthly victory in the, vi- in the building of the kingdom of God on earth, socially and institutionally into a vision of victory of the kingdom of autonomous man on earth, a kingdom to be established primarily through political action. Thus, the discontinuity of the Second Great Awakening did not produce a continuity of Christian social reform and institution building after 1865. The revival's discontinuity did not produce the kingdom's institutional continuity. What followed was a theological war between liberalism and a new version of revivalism, 1863 to 1975, with the evangelicals more and more placing their hope in a future 
this continuous event, the bodily second coming of Christ, to take them out of this continuously evil world. Thus, Bible-believing Christianity in the United States steadily lost its original faith in the earthly success of the church and of the transforming power of the gospel prior to Christ's bodily return to glory. In glory, Christians lost faith in historical continuity. They placed their hopes and dreams of kingdom building in a future beyond the day-to-day continuities of the Christian's daily moral walk with Christ. They saw the building of the kingdom of God on earth as the product solely of a great discontinuous future event, one completely outside their power to influence except maybe the personal soul winning. When the last person is brought to Christ, then he shall appear in the heavens. Soul winning became the focus of concern. Social reform became, at most, a downtown rescue mission uh, operation to sober up a few drunks or foreign orphanage operations, which all too often imparted only the ability to read to young people, whereupon the communists recruited them to become communists, rather than the Christians had produced a large quantity of literature and promoted a deeply rather than the Christians had promoted a large quantity of literature that promoted a deeply religious atheistic vision of earthly victory. This is because the communists, rather than the Christians, had produced this quantity of literature that promoted a deeply religious atheistic view of earthly of victory. At the same time that the evangelicals were adopting a worldview based on historical discontinuity, the theological and political liberals became the advocates of historical continuity. They successfully stole the Christian's original vision of earthly victory and secularized it. This successful theft is the source of the myth still found in church history books, that post-millennial social optimism is a form of theological liberalism, Why then was virtually the entire faculty of Princeton Theological Seminary, the nation's most prestigious Bible-believing seminary in the 19th and early 20th century, both post-millennial and politically conservative throughout the 19th century? Why was Princeton's Charles Hodge a post-millennialist and author of the famous Systematic Theology, the great opponent of Charles Darwin and evolution, the Scopes Trial? This self-imposed cultural burial of Christians accelerated in 1925 with the Scopes Monkey Trial, evolution in the public schools, and it did not begin to change until the late 1970s with the appearance of the anti-abortion movement and the presidential candidacy of Southern Baptist Jimmy Carter. With the coming of these preliminary signs of salt and light revival among fundamentalist Christians also come the growth of doubt regarding the prevailing eschatologies of earthly despair and Christian cultural retreat. What people believe inevitably affects what they do, but what people do also affects what they believe. Quite frankly, one reason why the Christians today read and believe David Chilton's little book, The Great Tribulation, Dominion Press, 1987, which argues the commonly held pre-1900 theological view that the Great Tribulation took place in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem to the Roman army is because of the coming of the growing conflict over abortion. If Chilton is correct, 
This means that Christians' socially paralyzing concern over some inevitable catastrophe in the future or the church's inevitable removal from history just before this inevitable catastrophe is misplaced. It means that Christians need not fear the supposedly inevitable defeat of the gospel of Jesus Christ prior to his second coming and final judgment. It means, in short, that the church is not a loser in history. Therefore, our efforts in, as Christians to make the world better before Jesus returns to earth in glory are not doomed to inevitable defeat by Bible prophecy. Christians can lose many inevitable, can lose many battles, but they cannot lose the war. As with any army, we can experience painful defeats, but the victory of our righteous cause is assured. People do not want to join a personal a personally risky battle that their leaders say cannot be won before Jesus comes to rapture them to the safety of heaven. Christian leaders who seek to mobilize followers in such confrontations have begun to abandon their former, uh, their former commitment to eschatologies of earthly defeat, especially the younger leaders. This is why the battle over abortion has led to a battle over eschatology. This is also why those fundamentalists who preach the older cultural, cult, culturally defeatist eschatologies did not immediately start protesting abortion after Roe v. Wade in 1973. The abortion issue has polarized Christians in many areas and for many reasons. The old rule is true. You cannot change just one thing. Conclusion. We must preach Christ and him crucified, but we must also preach Christ resurrected and ascended seated on the right hand of God in full authority. We must preach the Holy Spirit, God's representative who guides his people into all truth. We must preach the transcendence of God on high and the presence of God in our hearts and in our midst. Nothing less than this will do. Christians need to challenge the lies and evils of our day. Personal lies and evils, but also institutional lies and evils. Both challenges are important. To ignore either is to ignore God's offer of comprehensive redemption from sin. The inevitable, this inevitably means confrontation. It did in the early church, and it has ever since. Rome did not want to abandon the worship of the state. Neither does the modern world. The decision of Christians to confront the institutional evils of their day is a prelude and handmaid to revival. Without this willingness to become confrontational, God need not take us seriously. If we do not want comprehensive revival, we may not get even soul-winning revival. In the 1820s to the 1850s, the revivals of the Second Great Awakening were closely associated with the political and legal protest against the institutional evils of chattel slavery. Today, the protest against abortion seems to be the visible sign of Christian revival. If Christians fail to take this opportunity to challenge known evil, will this generation perish in the wilderness? In summary, one, to raise the question of obedience to unjust laws is to raise the question of social ethics. We must ask ourselves, to what extent are we bound by sinful laws? We must ask, by what right do unjust men rule over us? We begin our search for answers with a consideration of the nature of God. 5. God is both transcendent and present. 6. God is wholly personal. 7. He is the creator. 8. His universe is therefore wholly personal. 9. He claims absolute sovereignty. Covenant-breaking people deny this claim. 11. There is a war on between rival views of authority. This 
war is political as well as theological. 13. The God of a society is its source of civil law. 14. This law will reflect the ethics of the God. 15. God is the only true source of law in society. 16. Christians deny the false gods of men and therefore the false legal orders that testify to such false gods. 17. Christians are therefore implicitly revolutionaries against all non-Christian social and legal orders. 18. Christians are in principle at war with much of society. 19. Christians want peace but find themselves at war. 20. The comprehensive nature of Christ's claims forced them into a confrontation with anti-Christian societies. 21. Sin is comprehensive, therefore the gospel's healing power is equally comprehensive. 22. God promises to bring healing to society in history. 23. Jesus fulfilled the Jubilee year. 24. This Jubilee has been proclaimed to the Gentiles. 25. God's covenant now extends to all nations. 26. The Holy Spirit empowers Christians to obey and extend this covenant. 27. Christians lack confidence because they do not understand how transcendent God is and how present He is. 28. Christians have been on the defensive. 29. God is not judicially absent. 30. The gospel is confrontational. 31. Christians should think in terms of extending Christ's kingdom in history before the rapture. 32. We need revival, continuity, discontinuity, and then continuity. And 33. Christians need to challenge all the evils of our day. Archie slash representation government. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.